Good Wednesday to everybody and welcome to the Mic Drop Show. This one's going to be a barn burner. We've got, we have so much to talk about and this is really going to start defining uh, the way these go forward because I think we're going to, I think we're probably going to have to start doing a couple a week here. There, there's just, there's so, so much that's happening um, and my guess is if you guys want to get more insight, you guys will tune in and be a part of this mic drop conversation. So bring your questions, uh, bring your suggestions, send me topic information. A lot of you guys have been sending um, a ton of information, requests on the polling in Arizona and Ohio, which is why I threw it in today. Just a few moments ago, we saw the overturning of the stay on Donald Trump's um, holding classified information at Mar-a-Lago. I tweeted out just a few moments ago some of the spending numbers that came in from the DCCC's massive, massive unloading of the war chest that they've got. We're going to talk about it all this evening, and we will go as is the norm as long as my voice holds out. And i got to be honest with you guys, it's not doing great because there's a lot of podcasts and a lot of shows going on, and I guess this is my talking time of the season. So, um, Quick housekeeping items. Again, mic drop here on Colin. You're able to find this uh, podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast, or at least most of the places you get your favorite podcast. But best place, I think, is right here on the Colin app. Do me a favor, uh, mic droppers, if you can, share uh, this show right now live. A couple of you guys are already doing it, and I really, really appreciate it. It helps build an audience, helps drive that algorithm. If you're new to mic drop, Please subscribe. It makes it easier for me to let you know when we're going to be going live. Sometimes it's going to be on on short call, and I guarantee you, you know, we we call them October surprises for a reason. There's a lot's going to pop and a lot's going to change, and there's going to be time. And I'm probably on the road walking through an airport, and I know that folks want to hear what the, what the impacts of certain developments are going to be. So I'm just going to jump on that app. And if you want to be alerted as to when I'm going live, it's going to be more than just Wednesdays at 5 o'clock from now on, folks. Uh, Subscribe. Really important that you hit that subscribe to the show. You can follow me on it as well. But the best thing to do is subscribe to the show so that I can let you guys know when we're going live. If you're too busy, of course, got other priorities in life because who doesn't have other priorities in life except for politics? You can ignore it. It's not going to be much of a bother. It'll just pop up on your app, let you know that the discussion is happening with some of the latest developments. One of those will be this Sunday, by the way. I promised you guys a conversation about the Texas poll coming out from the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation coming out on the 22nd, which is uh, tomorrow. I'll get an embargoed copy. I'm going to have the pollster on uh, later in the week. I don't exactly know what the date is, but I will certainly be able to alert you if you're if you're subscribing. So thank you all for for being a part of this community. Again, if you're new to Mic Drop, it's um, designed here to be as active and as engaging uh, as possible. I'm, I'm here to be as, as available to you to answer questions. The way I try to do this is get this set up by some of the things that I'm seeing that are the most impactful. There's three or four items I want to cover today. But this is question-driven. This is audience-driven, right? That's what's cool about this podcast is it's designed to get you the questions that you want answered. So um, you guys know the drill. Um, Welcome all the new mic droppers into this conversation. 
Let them know that their questions are welcome. A lot of times uh, I'll, I'll answer the same question week to week. Don't feel like you can't ask anything. Um, the range of the community here goes from professional political consultants and pollsters down to people who are just casual observers. The show's for everybody. It's supposed to be that kind of a format. I absolutely love it. I absolutely love engaging with you guys. Not a lot of political consultants or practitioners like this stuff. I, I love it. And again, I'm going to be here as long as you guys are interested uh, in having me and as long as I'm providing some value to you guys. So jump in the queue. Go ahead and get in early if you've got early questions. Uh, the rule uh, in the queue, by the way, is to ask one question. And if you've got another one, jump back up into the queue just so we can keep the flow going. All you have to do is, uh, you can see right there at the bottom of your app, um, to, to jump up and ask a question. And uh, let's, let's get going. Uh, the, the first topic that I mentioned was some, a couple of anomalous things are happening uh, that are really making me kind of dig deeper into some of what we call the fundamentals of the race, or it's at least what I call the fundamentals of the race. And, and I, want, I want you to know just the way that I think about races and the way that I is because this happens every election cycle. Like every election cycle, there's so much data and information coming in from so many sides at this point in the election cycle that it makes me really, really, really have to drill down and be disciplined and focused on the fundamentals of the race. And, and that's, that's, I mean, honestly, guys, this is why I love campaigns. This is the chaotic environment that is really starting. It starts at Labor Day. But with what's happened with the DCCC today, it, it's hitting a fever pitch. They dumped eight million bucks today, which means more is coming. And, and I look, I think that's a good sign. There's some interesting things. I'm going to walk through that spend. But many of you guys started following me on the Lincoln Project because you felt that I was able to convey a sort sense of calm. That's the calm you have to find. You have to find the roadmap that you built to get to where you need to go. And imagine a campaign of everybody trying to push you off of that road and everybody throwing stuff at you and shooting from all directions. You know you're gonna get home if you've done your homework. You know you're gonna get to where you need to get to. You know you're gonna win that campaign, you're gonna hold a majority or you're gonna unseat that incumbent if you stick to the roadmap. It was one of the first things I learned from one of the first political consultants I worked with as a young buck on campaigns in the early 1990s was stick to the plan, stick to the plan. There's going to be a million reasons that are going to pop up, a thousand variables that are going to pop up that are going to make you get off track on a campaign. The key is to be very level-headed, very calm, despite the storm going on around you, and execute your plan. And if you've done everything right for the previous 18 months, you've got to feel confident in where you're at and on the roadmap that you've laid out. If you don't feel confident in the campaign that you've, you've laid out or the roadmap that you've, you, you've put together, well, I mean, you're not going to win anyway, right? So you got to stick to the plan despite all of this noise going on around us. And I'm going to talk about some of that noise. I'm going to get a lot of questions, I would imagine, on some of that noise because that's what makes campaigns fun and interesting. And I know it sounds strange because of the height of what's going on right now, but man, I, this is, I love this part of the cycle. I love this part of the campaign. This is where I find my stride. This is where I hit the zone. This is where I start to see the numbers really clearly. This is where the roadmap uh, of each campaign starts to become clear. I can see the chessboard that's before them. All of the variables that we've been testing, 
you know, are Democrats really committed to the Hispanic community? Are they not? Do they need to be? Uh, do they not need to be? It, all of the spend now, all of the spend is telling me what their polling has been showing and what their roadmap says is the path to victory. Okay, that's what's happening right now. That's where this cool stuff is at. That's where, where, where we're at in this, this part of the campaign cycle. And, man, I love it. I love it. This is, this is where I find myself. This is, this is where Mike Madrid does his best work. It's a little bit odd because I'm not involved in the campaign cycle for the first time in 30 years outside of a dozen or so races here in California, but nothing, nothing uh, massive. Not doing any Senate races, certainly not doing any uh, governor's races. I'm not involved in any of the House races, but I'm, I'm intimately involved in watching and taking measure of all of the campaigns that are going on. And the first thing I want to talk about is some of the divergent data, which is now coming into focus. We've been talking a lot about Biden's approvals, and Biden is on a rocket ship, man. His numbers are, are just exploding. Uh, for early followers of Mike Drop and some of the early episodes, I was saying, hey, man, red flags are out there. Unless something changes, changes considerably, changes significantly, and changes pretty damn fast, uh, you're going to see a red wave the size of which is going to you know, shake you out of your shorts. After Dobbs happens, after the Uvalde shock hits our system, after the Jan 6 stuff starts to take effect, Donald Trump steals nuclear secrets, you know, uh, and is, is gets popped today in, in New York courts by the New York AG. And now, in just a few mi- moments ago, the stay is overturned on the classified material search. All of these dynamics are having an effect on key voter groups, which are absolutely important and critical to the outcomes of these races. But Biden's numbers are moving up. Gas prices are going down. The pressure of inflation is very real, and I don't want to undermine that. But there is an increasing confidence in Joe Biden. Okay, people are feeling better. The wrong track numbers aren't as strong. They're still not good for an incumbent. Don't get me most of November. So, um, I'm getting some feedback that you guys might be um, not able to hear me. Is that the case? You guys loosen me? Can you guys hear me okay? Sorry. It wouldn't be a good mic drop episode if we weren't getting a couple of technical difficulties. Uh, I'm hearing, yes, you guys are losing me. Um, let me keep, let me, let me, I'm going to keep talking while I do this so that you, you can keep hitting my stride. The best thing to do, hold on one second, I think I got a fix here. Guys, if you can hear me, hit that little button that says thumbs up. All right. Looks like we're getting a, a couple people can hear me, so I'm going to keep talking. If there's a if there's a problem, put it in the chat room. But I'm just going to keep doing what Mike Madrid does and just keep talking through this. But that the the, the thumbs up stuff helps. Okay. Uh, so this divergence that we've been talking about between the generic ballot, uh, which has always been in a pretty strong position for Democrats at the House side, uh, at least it hasn't been great, but it's in good position now. And the divergence, the gap between President Biden and the party in power. Um, have closed, and they've closed considerably, okay? 
there's really uh, Biden is, is is sitting in a negative position. But that's 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 become the norm uh, since the Obama years. We're just too partisanized a country. Donald Trump was never getting never got over, never pulled over 50 percent approvals in any of the averages. Never. It's never happened in American history before. Donald Trump was the first. Obama, of course, uh, would pop over uh, periodically. Um, but for the moment, uh, Joe Biden is sitting at about a 41, 42 range, way better than the 32 he was at. In fact, he's been about a six and a half increase over the last uh, couple of weeks, which is which is really stratospheric. It's really it's it, I, I, I can't explain to you how big of a comeback that is. And at the same time, there has been this closing on the on the uh, generic ballot numbers. Um, between the Democrats and the Republicans in a positive way for Democrats, which, which in a normal traditional cycle would speak very well of the party where that momentum is going. The question will be, does it peak too early? Can you keep and sustain that level of support for the next 50 or so days? We're going to have to wait and see. My suspicion, at least at this moment in time, is yes, probably, because I think it's been brewing since June. And I think people are antsy and they're, they're ready, they're motivated, they're angry, they're scared uh, to, to show up and vote on both sides, by the way. And we'll get to that in a second. I'm going to talk about the Republicans in just a second. But those numbers now are, are hitting a traditional range for a party uh, that w- who, whose fortunes were not looking good a few weeks or months ago to, to be pretty good. Okay? You, you guys have been hearing me talk about this for a little bit. But what I'm going to say is... We're not in normal times, right? We're not in normal times. And, and, and this is that moment that I was, I was talking about earlier where you start to question some of your basic assumptions. And you start to saying, wait, does the roadmap that has always guided me on public opinion and on campaigns, does it still work? Does that traditional indicator still apply? Is that something that still makes sense in trying to determine the trajectory of the campaign? And every time I get off track, I've got to walk myself back and remind myself that the fundamentals of races remain the same. So here again is what we know. We know that turnout in every election that has happened since June has benefited the Democrats. We also know that the historical trend benefits the party out of power, especially a party out of power in both both houses of Congress and the White House. And usually by significant numbers, by the way. Obama got beat really good in 2010. Donald Trump got beat really good in 2018. They weren't close, right? The, the, a first-term president who controls both houses and the White House is usually in an extraordinarily weak position because, remember, people vote against things. They don't vote for things more often than not, especially swing voters. And so you've got you have to build that into your modeling. You have to build historical trends into your modeling. Because if you don't, if you don't, you're just guessing. Right? History is a pretty good indicator. We've we've had a lot of elections in this country's history. We've had a lot in the last, you know, century and and, and that's where we, where we start is about 50 years ago. The 50-year trend tells us a lot and it's a pretty damn good indicator of what's going on. But again, these are anomalous times. These are anomalous times. A lot of the things that we predicted in 2016 in polling proved not to be true. 
a lot of things that we thought about to turn out as it related to Trump himself being on the ballot turned out not to be true. And so what we look is a little bit more recently. And again, the turnout model, the turnout model benefits the Democrats. History, the historical trend, benefits the Republicans. We've got new lines, new districts, <coughs> which is going to change the shape um, of the electorate and who voters are, which voters are being targeted. And right now, you also, for those of you that follow me on Twitter, you know that I keep saying that the midterms are closer than they appear. I, I think, I, and I have been saying this, if you listen to Democrats, they've been saying, oh no, we're, we're great, there's going to be a blue wave. If you listen to Republicans, oh no, we're great, there's going to be a red wave. They both can't be true, right? You guys know me well enough to know I, I'm not really interested in either side. I'm interested in protecting and saving the country, and that's where I'm going to focus. And I'm going to try to keep my bias out of where I want it to be. Obviously, I want to see Democrats win right now, but I there's nothing Mike Madrid gets in terms of advantage by, by leaning into the Democratic arguments. And there's certainly nothing I get by leaning into the Republican arguments. I'm just here to call it as I see it from a practitioner's perspective, okay? I think, the, I think these midterms are, are not only much closer than people think they are on both sides, I think we're going to see a lot of split information. Now, the 50 days out, this is the, here's the caveat every political consultant does. It's kind of like listening to a lawyer saying, on, on one hand this, on the other hand this. Um, but, but my caveat is 50 days is still a lot of time. A lot's going to change. A lot is going to change. There's going to be a lot of October surprises. We don't know what Putin's going to do, right? Putin's you know, raised his ugly head up again, he's saber-rattling with nuclear weapons. Is there a, a chemical or nuclear strike in Kiev? Does something happen in the Donbass? Uh, does China start to move more aggressively in Taiwan because they want to rattle and upend uh, our midterm elections? We, we know that if the Republicans take the House, there's going to be a strong move to stop funding Ukraine. That's basically, that's basically funding Vladimir Putin. But we know that's going to happen, Okay. So there's a lot of foreign actors that want to see a Republican Congress. And you better believe, you guys know I've been in Ukraine, I've been in Brazil, I've been watching foreign involvement in, in domestic campaigns. You better believe that there's a lot of foreign governments that have been spending millions of dollars figuring out a way to mess with our elections. That is coming. That is going to happen more than it already is. And by the way, it is already happening. Okay. So there's going to be an October surprise. What we, we, it's a surprise because we don't know what it is, but there will be some late shifts. There always are. And to watch the amount of momentum and the amount of shifting happening in the, last, in the current 50 days is actually quite, quite significant. Like I said, Biden's numbers popping like that, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in any normal uh, – I, I shouldn't say that. It happens sometimes in a time of war. Okay, like th that's how significant this 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 shift is. Is it sustainable? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But 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 voters are changing their opinions as we speak. Races are tightening. I think in places like Georgia, highly likely you see a split decision there. I'm not I'm not bullish on Stacey Abrams. I'm not. I know I'm going to break a lot of hearts and probably piss a lot of people off by saying that. I never have been. I did a whole show on this. Did a whole mic drop episode on this. I'm not saying she can't win. I'm saying the fundamentals don't look really good for her. 
But I do think Warnock can pull this thing off. Walker is way closer than he should be. Dude should not be in contention. Okay? So I think there's a split there. Now let's look at Ohio. DeWine's going to win. The Republican's going to win by probably 18, maybe 20 points going away for governor. But that Senate race, like Tim Ryan, is, is I think he was up a point today in the latest uh, polling. Like, J.D. Vance should have put this race away in the summer. This thing, he should have put that thing to bed. The fact that Ohio is competitive in, a, in an environment like this with the demographics that it has is, 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 um, is something you've got to take a look at and, and listen to. So let me spend a little bit of time on that race. One of the fascinating things about that race is you've got a particularly strong, well-suited Democrat and a particularly weak, ill-suited Republican. That creates an environment where there's a massive opening. Right where this this could very easily, um, well, I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to say is it's far, far, far more competitive than I thought this would be. If you asked me six months ago, I would have said just put 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 that put that put that in the R column and let's go fight somewhere else. For the first time, I'm thinking Ryan's actually this thing's for real, and and I'm going to tell you why. Particularly strong Democrat, blue collar Democrat opposes Biden. When he needs to, like on the college loan programs, you may be a hater, you may not like him, whatever, smart politics. It's, it's, it's strengthening his hand there with blue-collar workers. It, it just did. It worked. Ryan was out there saying, no, this is a bad idea, it's bad policy. It worked. Vance can't seem to get his, his – man, if I, 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 I wake up with cold sweats thinking about candidates I had like him when they are just that bad. He's not Herschel Walker bad, but in some ways he's kind of worse. He's like if you mix Herschel Walker in with Kerry with Lake, you get J.D. Vance, right? And 34 35% of Ohioans don't have a, 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 an opinion formed in that race. That's crazy. And in most, in most campaigns that, that I'm looking at where a third of the electorate still doesn't have a definitive opinion of either candidates. There's that much fluidity. There's that much room for movement. I'm going to err nine times out of 10 on, on where the trend line of that state has been going, which means Republican. But I can't see anything in the history of Vance's candidacy that suggests that he's doing anything other than speaking to this MAGA base. They're not doing anything proactively that is punching through. And you have a candidate like Ryan where he doesn't have a partisan advantage. He doesn't have a demographic advantage who is doing exactly what he should be doing by saying, I'm independent. You've got to oppose your president. As a, as a, as a Democrat running in a state like Ohio, You've got to take on your party and say, I'm not beholden to the party and demonstrate your independence. And that was the master stroke that Ryan used when he, uh, when he opposed the Biden plan on, on college loans. So say what you will about the policy. Again, we've, we've talked about it ad nauseum. I, I'm not a big believer in the policy, but I'm a huge believer, and I've said this, about the politics that Ryan has used, and it's showing in the polling. He's sitting in a plus one position in the latest poll. The averages, I think, are still bouncing around, probably still have him down. 
I'm not going to fault anybody for saying that's really a Republican seat and will break into that Republican um, you know, zone at the end because that's probably where the smart money is at. But damn, I am going to say this race should not be competitive. This race should not be that close. And it is. You got a lot of pro-choice independent voters. You've already got a sitting Democrat in that in the Senate there. Democrats can win. It's not the trend line, certainly not in presidentials. You've got something more importantly at the top of the ticket. You've got a Republican who's going to win by 18, 20 points. Like, it's hard to see that many Ohioans down ticket going, okay, I'm going to vote for Mike DeWine. I'm going to vote for my Republican Congress member. Uh, uh, Trump is still more popular in that state, by the way, than Joe Biden. Still old fading Trump signs in a couple of yards, right, in some of the, some of those surrounding communities, uh, especially in, in southeast part of the state. You gotta you gotta dump that negative and you've gotta keep running your positive, which is exactly what they're doing. That seat goes to Ryan or 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 to Vance. In my mind, with my count, I already had that in the red column. The most important thing that I'm looking for in Ohio is that it's within within you know five digits. I'm sorry, within five points. If it's in the low single digits, it's telling you something about other demographics that you need to pay attention to in other parts of the country. Okay. So that's uh, that's an important uh, uh, thing to remember. Now let's talk about Arizona. Talked about splits in Georgia. Talked about splits, potential split in Ohio. Probable, well, I shouldn't say probable, like possible split in um, in Ohio. I think there's a possible split in Arizona too. But you know, there's there's conf- there, there's a couple conflicting pieces of data. I saw a poll that was referenced that showed that the 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 kind of the MAGA crazy guy that's running for Secretary of State uh, up uh, a couple of points. Now is that is that accurate? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's very hard to test down ticket for anything in any state uh, in the union. Okay? So you got to take down ticket polling with a real grain of salt because most, most down ticket voting is a function of the generic ballot. That's really where it matters. Not as much in Congress, not as much in governor's races, not even as much as in Senate races. But when you start talking about Secretary of State and Treasurer and Controller and railroad commissioner, whatever you have in your respective state down ticket, it's important that you remember that um, it's important that you remember that that looking at down ballot races um, is extremely, extremely difficult to do because they are largely a function of the generic ballot and the partisan lean of the state. Having said that, Polling, last couple polls coming out uh, of Arizona shows a uh, significant lead by Kelly in the Senate race. Okay, He's starting to, I think, widen that gap a little bit. I'll take a look at the Real Clear Politics average. I'm seeing insider politics, by the way, uh, in the audience. If you want to jump up here and, and weigh in on some of that. By the way, if you're not following insider politics on Twitter, you, you need to. Uh, this is one of the uh, accounts that shares uh, polling data with me pretty much every day, sometimes a couple of times a day, and, and points out some of the anomalies that are going on. That's extremely helpful, by the way, is to get that information from people who are tracking polling. But if you're inclined to jump up here, um, feel free to jump up. 
Um, if not, that's okay too. Um, by the way, Insider Politics has a great podcast. I think it's on on Tuesday nights. But if you follow um, that uh, Twitter handle, then um, they'll alert you as to when those those uh, uh, polling discussions are calling up, and they do a good analysis, especially for beginners, on what's happening um, in, in polling because there's going to be so damn many polls coming out, guys. And there's a lot of junk and there's a lot of noise. And it, it can it's like drinking too much coffee. If you've got too much, it's going to make you jittery. It's going to make you nervous, and you ain't going to be able to sleep. You got to be really careful with your polling intake, as I was telling you guys in 2020, right? If you keep going from poll to poll and it's showing different things, uh, which they're going to, you're going to drive yourself absolutely nuts. Okay, got to focus on the fundamentals. But let's talk about about this poll uh, between Kelly uh, and, and Masters. The, mo- the most important thing, uh, two, two important things. The first is there's a 40 percentage point gap between the Democrat and the Republican on the Hispanic vote. Very important in Arizona. You guys know that. I banked a ton of, ton of votes by, by going into Arizona early, knowing that Hispanics would come home at a traditional level. They're doing exactly that in the polling in Arizona. Hispanic rightward shift that you've been hearing me talk about, that you've been reading about, it's not happening in California, and it's not happening in Arizona, and I've written on it extensively as to why. So when I talk about this Hispanic shift, it's happening in states outside of California and Arizona, and to this point, that base seems to be holding very strong for Kelly. What's interesting also, though, for Kelly is he's getting, now in this poll, and again, I'm going to take this with a grain of salt, but these numbers are pretty impressive. There's like a 20-point crossover of for Republicans, 20% of whom, a lot of Kelly's lead comes from the support of Republicans. 20% of them said that they're planning to vote for Kelly. Okay, Masters is only getting uh, 65% of Republicans. Th- this is the, the, the trouble that these MAGA Republicans have. And I was talking to a reporter from Politico today who's working on a story on the fallout of of the attorney uh, of the uh, AG in New York coming after Trump this morning. You'll see it on Politico coming out tomorrow. Like Ween. And what I was telling the reporter was, look, at a certain point, the the Republican base is shrinking so much. And, and some of the numbers I've seen with self-identified Republicans um, are, 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 are 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 a little are what, what's the right word? They're um, they're in, I'm going to say interesting just so I can uh, keep going on. I'm not going to find the right word. They're interesting and they're peculiar because that number is shrinking. Self-identified Republicans are not increasing. This is an area where I, I see things differently than a lot of other uh, um, campaign guys from years back. Matthew Dowd, for example, has said, oh, the number of self-identified Republicans is up. If you're watching self-identified Republicans at any given moment in time, you're probably not assessing the state of the electorate very well. One. Two, if you're ever going to assess it, if you're ever going to look at self-identified party identification of where Americans are voluntarily telling you which party they're in, now is the time to do it within 60 days of the election. That's when you need to do it. But what, what Trump is doing is he's creating this intense, shrinking base of Republicans that's getting crazier and crazier and more spun up, right? It's like people are starting to realize, okay, the old crazy dude led us down a bad path, and one bit, one person by one person, they're leaving. Again, those of you guys that follow me on Twitter, that's why I do that drip, 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 right? Every time a Republican leaves, 
a Republican elected official speaks out, I just write drip, 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 because that's what I'm talking about. It's not going to happen in one fell swoop. It's going to happen Liz Cheney by Adam Kinzinger, by you know, Governor, former Governor Todd Whitman, by whoever. It's go- These drips are, are adding up. And drips of water over time can, can burn through granite. So this idea that somehow Trumpism is going to be a sustainable force as a party uh, um, apparatus, is it's ridiculous. It's not a question of whether or not it's going to last. It's, 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 it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it collapses, okay? And I, I do believe the fundamentals with his polling and with these types of candidates, we are starting to see that break, Okay. Now, I'm not saying it's all going to happen at a dam all at one time, but I am. I am. If if you take a thirty thousand step uh, step back and you look at Donald Trump's polling numbers, and you look at the candidates and their reactions and the way that they are reacting to him, uh, there are. Like I said, if you look at at Carrie Lake in Arizona, she won, but she got like fifty three, fifty five percent as the pro Trump candidate. That means the anti-Trump candidate got 45% in the Republican base. And now Masters, who is the Trump candidate, is seeing 20% of Republicans saying, I ain't voting for that lunatoon. I'm not going to do it. The guy's, the, guy's, the guy's a kook. I'm, I'm, I won't do it. And, and, and remember, look at it this way. If we need trend lines and that helps, you guys all heard me talking about the Bannon line, right? Mike Madrid's Bannon line. Four percent, four, five, six percent. Not only Mike Madrid said it, Steve Bannon said it. That's why I named it the Bannon line. This means the Bannon line is five times what it was. Twenty percent of Republicans are not are saying they're not going to vote for the GOP candidate for the United States Senate when a majority is at stake. That's that that that's catastrophic. For a Republican Party. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is entirely accurate, but I'm saying even in a scientific poll of even marginal cal- caliber that's showing a 20-point defection from Republicans to Democrats is a five-alarm fire for the Republican Party. At least in Arizona. Doesn't explain the rise of Herschel Walker, but I do believe that it explains perfectly what this poll does with Masters in Arizona. I think it perfectly explains the fact that J.D. Vance doesn't have a secure base in Ohio. I think it explains a hell of a lot about Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. And so the, 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 the MAGA movement is shrinking and it's getting more intense. But as it shrinks, it's shrinking because people are leaving, but it's also pushing independence away. Okay? And as it gets more intense, as it gets more crazy, as Trump leans into the queue, literally, he's pushing away these voters that the Republican Party desperately needs to be competitive. The Republican Party should be far more competitive in Ohio should be far more competitive in Arizona, should be far more competitive in Pennsylvania, 
It's doing well in Georgia. It's actually overperforming where I thought they would be. It's doing well in Nevada. Don't sleep on Nevada, folks. Nevada's, Nevada's an area of concern. Florida, I think Rubio's, you know, it's not, I don't think it's bringing Rubio down. But there are enough states that are demonstrating enough weakness MAGA base that I feel optimistic about us seeing we I think we've we 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 crossed the hilltop in twenty twenty, right? The guy was president, we get him unelected. And you know, there's this big question of his resurrection, right? We don't talk as much about there's not as much chatter about Donald Trump running in twenty twenty four. I'm not saying it isn't there. It's a lot of speculation. But I'll tell you who's really, really worried about it is every Republican political consultant and every Republican professional whose job it is is to win Senate, gubernatorial, and congressional races or House races because that 20-point defection is a massive, massive drag. We're going to get into House races in just a second, but I'm going to take a couple of questions we got a regular longtime caller, Josh. Josh, my man, how are you doing? Go hey, what's up, Mike? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you great. I, I've always been curious uh, about a difference in opinion between you and um, Joe Trippi on a specific subject, especially what you've been saying about these races today, tonight. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, you know, so a lot of the districts that are being contended in the house are happening and joe i'm saying trippy has pointed this out it's a valid point are mm -hmm. being contended in the same states environments where democrats running for senate seats are maybe overperforming or they're up a point or three points or five points maybe more in pennsylvania case of federal but i haven't i don't remember but i guess i'm curious why unless you've changed your mind since why are you so much less or excuse me, so much more pessimistic about the House and say Trippy is, because who also thinks that the redistricting has been a wash for the Republicans. So I'm just curious if do you feel more confident than say last week about the House? Or are you still pessimistic about that compared to say the Senate races? Well, and why? yeah, great question, Josh. Real quick, can, have you been able to hear me? Okay, like can people hear me? I've been hearing you except for that one hiccup that happened like maybe 20, 30 minutes ago at the beginning. Okay, gotcha. All right, thanks. And we're, we're one other quick question, too. Trippy is more bullish on Democratic pickups than I am. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, well, he's a lot more optimistic than, like, anyone about, about the House specifically. Yeah, yeah. Um, look— Joe may be right, and I, I'm a big fan of Joe's. Uh, we've done a lot of stuff together in the past. Um, we've actually, as a Democrat, I've worked more with him than against him. Um, I, I, I should probably touch bases with him uh, just to get his sense of where the House seats are. The, the first thing is um, I don't have a lot of specific insight into the House races because no one really does. That's one of the, the secrets about an off-term election is what we're using, what, it's that what Joe is saying, is that a lot of these contested races are where the Senate or the statewide Democrats are overperforming, and that's a good sign, right? Is that what he's saying? That, that's pretty much that. He's saying that, and on top of the fact that the redistricting that the uh -huh. Republicans have done has been more yeah. or less a wash, yeah. not as in, much in their favor as they had hoped it would be. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm going to agree with both of those, but let me tell you why I, I might see it a little bit differently. <laughs> the first is... Um, 
let me say the redistricting piece too. Now, remember, guys, when we were going into redistricting, a lot of y'all were probably totally freaked out that the Republicans were going to draw out a, a 50, 60, 70 seat advantage, right? You don't hear anything about that anymore because Democrats drew a lot of seats to their advantage where they could, and they played their, 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 their hands very, very well. And I think that redistricting actually maybe slightly benefited Republicans, but nowhere near what was expected. So I think it's fair. If what Trippy is saying is, is it's a draw, I would largely agree with that. Largely agree with that. Now, the, the, the argument that he's making is a very good one, which is if you look and – and, and I look at the same metric. If I'm looking at competitive seats, there's going to be an advantage, arguably anyway – that a Democrat that is overperforming in Ohio, for example, a state that's traditionally more red, you got to give a couple of points to the Democrat there. And that's where a lot of these contested races are. They're in these battleground states where Democrats are holding their own or overperforming expectations, and that rising boat will lift all uh, everybody beneath them. That's, that's the argument as I understand it. And that's a, that's a damn good argument. Having said that, I just made the case as to why there's some very strong split ticket voting going on. Okay? And when I'm looking and, and here more importantly, let's right. look at let's let's talk about let's use this as a transition point to the Democrat, the D triple C's spend, which I just was tweeting about 30 minutes before the show started. Look at the races that they're prioritizing. They just dumped eight million dollars today. That almost matches the entire amount they've spent from January 1 until yesterday. Okay? This is, and this is the exciting part. This is a massive, massive unloading of the war chest. Like the Democrats are like, charge. Take the field. Here's where we're going. Here's where we're going to attack. And let me tell you that if you believe that, that budgeting is a statement of values and priorities, there is no better roadmap than some of the tweets that I just put out showing where the priorities are. And let me tell you where they are. If you look at California, the number one seat that they are unloading in is the Valadeo seat. It's California 22. Did I get that right? I think it's 22. Right? It's David Valadeo's seat. Really important. Why? Because this is a rural district, and it's a heavily Hispanic district. These are the districts that, for, under, under virtually every other circumstance, is breaking for the Republicans. And they're spending heavily there. You know what else I did not see on the list? And of all the money spent, all the big money spent, not a dime was spent in the Rio Grande Valley going after Myra Flores or Monica De La Cruz. At the same time, Monica De La Cruz in Texas, I think it's uh, 15 or 17, right there on the, on the border, right next to Myra Flores' seat. The Republicans have outspent the Democrats by $1.5 million. A million and a half bucks in a heavily Hispanic, heavily Democratic district. There's only one explanation as to why. And the answer is... Whoa, Josh, can you mute there, buddy? Yeah. Oh, wait, you need me to mute? Oh, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. That's cool. So the, the, so the question is why? Why are the Democrats pulling out their, their spend? Why are they not spending money in a rural district with high Hispanic voters in Texas? 
and yet it's the number one spend in California. Is that a good question? It's a question nobody's asked before. Of course, it's only been an hour and a half since people are looking at this, but this is what a nerd like me looks at. These are virtually identical districts. And the Republic, the Democrats are, are not spending a dime. They're being outspent by a million and a half in the Rio Grande Valley. And they're coming by spending a million dollars today in California with districts that look identical. What the hell is going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. Their data is saying that seat is safe in Texas. It doesn't matter how much the Republicans spend. It's not contestable. They feel confident that Hispanics are going to come home in that community and the remaining rural, rural white voters aren't going to be sufficient to overcome that. That's what they're betting on. How do I know that? Because the exact same demographic, they're betting on turning out and pushing the momentum in that same direction to unseat a Republican who holds something very similar. That's why. That's good news for the Democrats. I think it's a fascinating insight. And again, that's the best part about this is being able to look at the numbers and be able to discern those chess moves and say that's what's going on. And what that means is if they're right, and again, they're not guessing. They're spending tens of thousands of dollars for the past few weeks pulling the crap out of these districts. And if they're right, and my guess is they probably are. It means that Hispanics are coming back into the fold more looking like a 2018 midterm than a 2020 general election. That means the Myra Flores seat will be lost by the Republicans, picked up by uh, the challenger there. And it looks like Monica uh, De La Cruz, which is the, the best registration seat for the Democrats in Texas, is uh, not going to be in play. Again, it's fascinating to watch Republicans out spending $1.5 million on a Hispanic district, on a border district. That's just that's unheard of. It's like me looking through, going through the looking glass. The Republicans are trying desperately to put that seat into play, and the Democrats' data is saying it's not worth spending a nickel on. They're literally not spending a nickel. Will that change? Possibly. That doesn't mean that the Democrats are going to stop polling it. They're going to keep their feelers out there and see if the numbers move and if all these Republican dollars do move. And if they do, then they'll show up late and then we'll, we'll have an emergency meeting of mic drop because we'll, I'll be talking all about it and explaining it. But that's what's going on. And so when Trippy says, um, you, you know, um, there's going to be an, an uplift, that there will be a coattail effect. I'm not convinced of that. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm saying I'm not seeing any evidence of that. And I would rather be a Democrat having a statewide contestable race with a stronger candidate up top. But that doesn't, you know, look, does it help? Yeah, it helps. Does it help enough? I don't know. Does it help enough to overturn an entire nationalized election? What about the races where there aren't? What about the California seats, right? What about the New York, uh, uh, New York seats or other red state seats? Let's take a look, or, or, or Colorado even. Like, let's let's look at some of these contestable seats. It might it might be a good argument in an Ohio. It might be a good argument in Georgia. By the way, Georgia is one of the top five. Con- I think the Georgia too is is one of the top three or four spends from the Democrats too. So they're going in there with a ton of money. It, it, it might be right in Arizona. It might be, 
But that's not where all the contested races are. Remember, uh, com- all the competitive House races aren't necessarily in competitive Senate races. So I think you've got to give some advantage. Credit to, to, to Trippy, hat tip to Trippy to say that's a good way to analyze the race, to give the advantage, to you know, give a two-point two point boost, a two-point pop to some of those House races in competitive Senate seats. But they're not all in competitive Senate seats. They're not all competitive Senate races. So I'm not I, look. I, I don't think I'm either negative or I, I don't have a negative or 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 a pessimistic or optimistic view, Josh. I have consistently said since since Dobbs that I thought that the Republicans will hold on to the majority in the House by a 10, 15 seat margin. That's where I'm still at today. Can that change? Yeah, absolutely. I still see the Republicans picking up the House. I still see that it being a lot smaller than most people expected in January, but I do think that Democrats are getting a little bit frothy, a little bit overly optimistic, um, and I think I, I I just don't see enough evidence to to say that there's going to be a you know a wave election certainly, um, but the, uh, but uh, now one, one small caveat to that. We're not seeing Republican overperformance in races. We are seeing standard baseline performance. If we do have a massive turnout, if we do have a massive turnout, um, it will go back to a traditional pattern of benefiting Democrats over Republicans. So I, 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 can, can the Democrats hold on to the House? Yes. Do I think it's likely? No. I would say it's probably a 60-40 chance. You know, get rough, you know, back a napkin. I think it's a 60 percent chance that the Republicans take the House by a small margin, um, but it's not impossible. And again, a lot of things could change. I hope that helps answer the question. Great. Thanks a lot, Mike. That did help. Thanks, buddy. Great question. And we're going to pop you up into the queue. Josh always asks great questions, man. This guy's a follower of, of a lot of different consultants. And I like that because we get some great feedback. You know, he's always. Uh, saying Madrid, this is what Trippy says, and this is what Axelrod's saying, and this is what Murphy's saying, and and it's great because it it makes me uh, again a lot of this is you know the generals on the war field, right? The the generals on the battlefield are the guys who are calling the shots. They're the ones who are saying unload the cannon here, spend the money there, and knowing knowing how people play chess is just as important as anything else, right? That that's that's what you saw a lot with with this battle uh, in in you know in uh, well I don't want bring it back to Russia and Ukraine, but that's, you know, when you're, when you're in a campaign, one of the first questions I ask is, is who's running the other campaign? Because we, we have, a, we, all of us have these patterns that we fall into. And when you can study uh, the other guy's patterns, um, it gives you, it gives you an advantage. So that's why uh, I like Josh's questions and insight. Another, another good longtime caller. Em, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Mike? Good. Good to hear from you. How do you stay energized through all of this <laughs> a lot of coffee a lot of coffee and just i i gotta tell you i don't know how but i don't sleep a lot these days <laughs> I, i've never slept well in the last uh you know 40 50 days of an election usually because the stakes are, are so high it's a habit i still haven't broken but i'm just like i said i i am enjoying this but it's kind of an unhealthy way to enjoy it because not a whole lot of self-care going on in the Madrid household at the moment. <laughs> I feel like it's a little reflected in your Twitter sometimes. It's like, yeah. oh, Mike, you must be exhausted, you poor thing. Yeah. But um, but thank you for all the comfort you give to all of us and the insight. My question sure. is, um, you have the thread, you know, where you do the drip, drip, drip. And then also on Twitter, you have the thread where you say, America, it's time for us to have a conversation about white evangelical Christianity. Yeah. 
And so my question is related to that, mm -hmm. because um, as a person of faith, when I mm -hmm. look at scripture, when I look at things, I just, I can't see what the white evangelical church is seeing. I, I yeah. just, I can't find it. It, it baffles me. It astounds me. And um, I've looked at, you know, I've read some things, some books about the specifics of the church and its development here and some things that would show the alignment between some politics and religion in some ways, right? Church yeah. and politics here. They're specific to the U.S. And then, Mike, I'll be in class teaching and I'll hear students from other countries parroting exactly the mm -hmm. same messages. Mm -hmm. And I'm intrigued by how in a completely different you know, cultural background, completely different, not, I mean, very different, maybe not completely, historical background, the two things with this, the craziness of Bolsonaro, the craziness of Trump, and the church aligns, somehow there's a through line there that yeah. I, you know, I don't know. And so my question is, I know you think a lot about this and you, you write about this, Yeah. but what is that through line? And are those is please tell me i feel like your answer is going to be no but please tell me that the church is kind of leading the charge on dropping out and not being part of the radical base anymore or are they the ones that are like hanging in there till the bitter bitter end yeah those are all great questions and this is an area that i do study a lot em and i have conversations about this and let me let me start by saying i i, I was reticent to um to tweet that out when I first started doing that because I don't want people to be offended by that, although it's probably very hard not to. And what I have found, unfortunately, in our current political environment is unless you stand up, not necessarily in a religious sense, but I'm okay with it, in any sense to my Republican brethren and show them the hypocrisy by holding up the mirror and making them stare themselves in the face, you don't get anywhere. I usually don't get anywhere anyway, but what I've learned is that people who, have, who are somehow able to draw the connection between Christianity and white supremacy and gun violence and nationalism are not Christian. Uh, that's my own my, that's my own belief. Uh, we, uh, there's a lot of people that would probably disagree with me on that. Probably there's probably 70 million Republicans who would disagree with me on that. That's <laughs> and that's fine. I'm okay with that. But my my bigger concern is is this: the church, as it's called, right? I, I come from a, a Catholic tradition. We don't necessarily refer to, to to all persuasions as a as the church. Doesn't mean that we don't mm -hmm. believe. By the way, that doesn't mean we don't believe other people are Christians. A lot of evangelicals right, right. don't believe that, that Catholics are actually Christians. But, but having said that, there is a problem in the evangelical world that is particularly pronounced with the white evangelical church. Black evangelicals do not vote for Donald Trump to the tune of 80%. In fact, they don't vote for him really at all. So if this was truly church teaching, why do black evangelicals and white evangelicals see the world in entirely different terms? And the answer is because white evangelical Christianity, this is a broad sweeping statement, I don't mean to bring all white evangelicals in, but most of them have fused the concept of nationalism with Christianity, Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is this belief that there's a very blurred line 
between the Christian faith and American identity. And that is un-American, first and foremost. That is antithetical to a pluralistic democracy. And what enrages me to no end was going to Brazil and, and seeing that one of the first things that Bolsonaro did was e- immediately eliminate most gun laws because he wanted Christians armed. He wanted his evangelical followers armed. Are you serious? Did he really he, do that? Yeah. This is a big oh part of what God. Bolsonaro was doing. He, he completely eliminated gun ownership laws. Now, there's not a strong gun culture in Brazil, even though it's one of the most violent cultures in the world. But if you look at Bolsonaro and gun laws, take a look at it. Just Google it real quick. Take okay. a look at it. Pull it up. And what you're going to see is this tremendous uh, uh, liberalization of gun laws. And now there are guns all over Brazil. At the same time, this guy is calling for uh, essentially a coup, laying the groundwork for a coup, and cl- declaring that if it's not his government, that secular government is a quote-unquote satanic form of government. Okay, you are hearing the same echoes of this at Trump rallies. You are seeing the Christian, which I didn't even know there was such a thing up until about a year and a half ago, a a Christian flag where in a lot of Christian denominated schools, they pledge allegiance to the U.S. flag and then immediately pledge allegiance to the Christian flag with the same language, the same intonation, the same colors on the flag as an effort to meld Christian identity with American identity. That is completely un-American, and I would also argue it's, it's not Christian. That's not the way Christ would view the world. It's to say if you're not, you know, you can't be fully a follower of mine unless you're, uh, you know, American. That doesn't make sense. And so my, my problems with white evangelical Christianity is what it's really doing is fusing Christian nationalism with, with white doctrine and saying that if you are not a white Christian nation, America, then you're not really American. You're not really Christian. And what they're trying to do is force a political movement by saying, if you disagree with the orthodoxy of the Republican Party, you're not Christian and you're not American. And it's why we are seeing this devolution away from policy and intellectualism that defined the Republican Party for me in the 80s to what it is now, which is all cultural warfare. It's all about being, you know, uh, anti-pronoun, anti-woke, anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ, anti-Muslim, anti-brown people. It's like a- anything that doesn't fit that the tribe's self-defined Americanism, right? They've captured the flag as their own propaganda and melded it with Christianity. And it is not—you don't see this in the Catholic Church, by the way. You don't see this in the Mormon Church, you see this in certain sects of evangelical Christianity, and no, I do not see church leaders going away from it. Candidly, it's good for building the congregation. They're leaning into it as much as they're leaning out of it. Now, having said that, and I'm going to wrap up on this, 42%, I read a poll on this, 42%, I'll, I'll find this, and I'll send it to you, 42% of, of evangelical pastors have considered leaving the uh, the order because they can't deal with the 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 the, the stresses and anxiety congregation so split on this line 
it's going to require true people of faith to stand up and say, this is not Christianity. Because it's not. And reject it. And it's kind of like, it reminds me of, of when we used to say, you know, during, during, remember when Fox News was all hopped up in the early 2000s about radical Muslim extremism, radical Muslim extremism, radical Muslim, and they would always say, where are the moderate Muslims? Where are the moderate Muslims standing <laughs> up and decrying this? Why aren't they denouncing it? Fair argument, actually. Where are the, where are the people from, 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 from you know, where, 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 are the, where, where are the leaders in the Islamic faith saying this is not an accurate representation of Islam? I would ask the same question of, of Christians today. Why are you not standing up and saying this is not Christianity? It's not only not American— which a lot of us are saying in a partisan construct because it's not American, but it's not Christian either. And that's, that's, what I, what is, that's why whenever I, I see these stories, oftentimes I'll post them and I'll say, it's about time we had that talk because it's not really Christianity. It's white. <laughs> it's white evangelicalism. And by the way, most of the rise of evangelicalism in Brazil is amongst white people. Brazil is a 57% Afro nation. 57%, 57% of, of, of Brazilians have African blood in them. It was a huge slaver country. And that, those demographics have not changed. There is a white minority, and that is largely where it is concentrated. And when you say all of the language of nationalism and all of the language of guns, all of the language of you know traditional family values— all of these things are a text playbook where Christianity means these things politically. That is not the message of Christ, at least not from my perspective. But M, thanks for the call. Thank you. you bet. David, you're up in the queue. Sorry, thanks for waiting so long. Go ahead and unmute and ask your question. Oh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, great. Uh, got a comment and then a, a question here. Okay. Hey, I live in Iowa, and right now the NRCC is starting to pump money into a couple races here. Uh huh. To go against uh, the money, I guess the uh, DN Triple C is pumping in. So I guess somebody thinks it's close. Yeah. Which which uh, which which seats? Uh, well, I'm closest to the uh, actually a Henson one. So that's the Northeast. Uh huh. That's two. They the redistricting. Yep. Um, and I don't get to really see what's going on in the Des Moines area, which is the uh, Axe Axe uh, seat. Yeah, but they're both they're pumping. Both sides are pumping money in there. Yes. I mean, the list you just gave actually had three seats up, giving mon Democrats giving money to out of four, which isn't bad. Yeah, Iowa three. They dumped a couple hundred grand, which goes a long way in Iowa. Yep. What else am I seeing? You should see. I think it's one, two, and three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There. Yeah. There you go. They're Trump. Trump plus three. Uh, Trump plus four. Uh, the Republicans are dramatically. Yeah. Well, not well. Not I guess for Iowa. Yeah. In. In Iowa, one, they're outspending the Democrats by $100,000. In Iowa, two, they're outspending the Democrats by 340000 
by uh, Iowa three. They're outspending, but yeah, they're spending. They're spending a lot of money. You're going to see a lot of political ads, buddy, for the oh, next, yeah. next fifty days. <laughs> yeah, that, that that little bit of money goes a long way on the. the yeah, in Iowa, that goes a long way. Yeah. So what? What was the question? Hey, uh, you posted a, 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 in a tweet a few days ago about the errors in the uh, you know polling from uh, twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. You know, showed uh, the from the poll to the final. You know, quite a few percentage points. Yeah, actually, yeah. was better. Now the question is: Now will they uh, pollsters take that into account and try to fix it, or is it just a Trump effect of his name in there? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not. It, um, God, that's a great question. The short answer is: um, They should be making adjustments. But again, the problem is when you start to adjust in some of these seats. By the way, the what he's referring to. Is the I think it's what can you can you mute there, David? I think I've got a little bit of feedback. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, sorry. okay. So what, what what David is referring to is um, the pollster for the Economist put out some information that was saying that there was kind of a built-in bias in a lot of these uh, competitive seats in 2020, and it's why Wisconsin, for example, the polling averages had Joe Biden winning by six or seven points. He won by you know a handful of votes, less than one percent. Arizona, same thing. Um, Pennsylvania, he was supposed to win by by much bigger numbers, ended up winning by a point or two. Uh, was there this hidden vote for Trump? Is it because Trump was on the ballot, or are these longer term biases that are not reflected in the polling? And if you take out those biases, what it shows is a much stronger position for the Republicans. And I tweeted that out because I want people paying attention. Right. You can't you shouldn't just be buying your own stuff. And I'm not saying he's right or he's wrong. But what I'm saying is that there's an argument to be made there. And it's a damn good one. It's a damn good one, because if Joe Biden is supposed to be winning Wisconsin and all the polls are averaging him winning by Wisconsin by seven percentage points and he ends up winning by 40, 40,000 votes. I mean, something's something's wrong. And if you walk into that same environment. And you've got a, a Ross uh, Johnson and Mandela Barnes race going on, and the polling average has Barnes up by one. How confident can you really be in that? It's a, it's a damn good question. And so what David's asking, I think, is is really important. And I'm, the short answer is I don't exactly know, but I do want to say how I'm looking at it to try to find and discern the answer. And that is you have to build in two different dynamics. The first is this Trump dynamic where it has only showed up in 16 and in 20 where non-college educated white voters are overperforming from him and they are overperforming in a way that um is 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 it's it's a historical there's no trend line precedent for it so no pollster could credibly simply add it in and just say well that's what i saw one big caveat. That's what Rasmussen did in 2016. They weighted it more towards non-college educated white voters with no precedent. And it's why he was the only pollster that predicted the numbers that he did in some of the states that he did. And that's fine. You can guess and be right sometimes. I mean, hell, sometimes after a few cocktails, I'll, I'll hit on 16 and I'll pull a five. Doesn't mean it's a smart move, right? You're playing blackjack, you're sitting on 16, you stay on that if you're playing the math right, if you're playing the numbers right. If you've had a few cocktails, yeah, you're feeling lucky, you, you know, scratch the table and you get a hit, sometimes you're going to get 2021. That's basically what happened. 
Okay, nine times out of ten, you're not going to hit it, but sometimes you do. And that, I think, is a perfect characterization because that's ex- exactly what a pollster would be doing is you're betting on your intuition. I don't hire a pollster for their intuition. I hire a pollster because the science tells me what I need to know. Okay, so the other adjustment, and we've talked about this on Mic Drop too, is how do you count for this burst of women that are registering and showing up to the polls, especially 18 to 25-year-old women, when they have no history of ever voting in a midterm or voted maybe once? Like, if you wait in that direction, you're, you're gambling. You're hitting 16 at the blackjack table. You might be right. But you also have to look at the conditions and say, is Dobbs long-term? Is it sustainable? My guess, my gut is, Mike Madrid's guess is, yeah, it is. Is there any data to prove that? Not, not good quantifiable data. I mean, I can use anecdotal stuff from Kansas and Nebraska and New York 19 on the special election, but does that matter in California 22 and Valadeo? Does that matter in the three congressional seats we were just pointing out in Iowa? I don't know. I mean, you can skew or cook your own polls internally, as we call it, by overweighting and looking at different scenarios. And I do a lot of that, by the way. It's called voter modeling. If we, if Democratic women go up by 2%, how many independent Republican men can I lose? Right? That We do that all the time in campaigns because that tells us how much of our resource needs to go where to which constituencies to get to 50% plus one. Are the polls going to reflect that? I don't know. I don't know. I certainly don't know individual, uh, by, you know individual pollster by individual pollster, but it is something that does make me look a little bit skeptically at the horse race polls, which is what I'm skeptical of anyway, if you listen to me. I don't believe in the horse race polls. I don't believe in, in the polling averages. Uh, they're great tools, but they're, they're, they're limited, right? It's like a, a screwdriver can sometimes, and we're all guilty of this, the back end of a screwdriver can sometimes be used as a hammer. You've all done it. I do it probably more than I should. doesn't mean it's the right tool. It may work once in a while. A lot of times, it, you know, it doesn't or screws things up even worse. But that's that's the danger of 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 overdosing on the polls right now. And that's kind of what one of the things I try to use to keep people calm is to say, look, I'm not saying don't look at the polls. I'm not saying don't believe the polls. People who who say that are that's silly. Polls are very meaningful, but you have to put them in the context of the tool that they're being used for. Okay, look for the movement. Look for the shifts in the polls. Look at the trend lines and try to get a feel of where the campaign is heading. Now we're in the election cycle where we can actually see the spend of the DCCC, of the NRCC, of the candidates themselves, and look at political ads differently. Does it use a woman's voice or a man's voice? Because if it's a woman's voice, they're talking to women. If it's a man's voice, they're talking to men, okay? Those little nuances are extremely important. So when you're watching ads, think about watching ads now, especially when they, you start to overdose on these things because they will. If you're, in a, if you're in Iowa, man, you're going to get bombarded. So one of the benefits of being in California is I got to go looking for political ads, right? You guys are all running away from them. I'm looking for them. You should do a little analysis, and, and do the, this will make you a better consultant and feel better about what you're doing. Take every 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 ad 
that you see, give it a name because you're going to see it 50 times, and say, who are they talking to here? Was that for men or for women? Because I guarantee you there's no ad that is targeted towards men and women. There's no such animal. That's a unicorn. I want you to start looking and saying, is that, are they talking to men or women here? Are they using that crime issue to scare women? Or are they using it to talk to men? If, I, if I'm putting up an ad of a woman coming from the bedroom to, to talk to her son about a certain issue, that's a mom ad. Okay, that's not talking to dad. If it's a bunch of rallies and activity and women marching for abortion rights and saying, show our power, show our strength, I'm talking to a single woman probably under the age of 30. I'm not talking to a 65-year-old Republican woman. I'm not talking to a 65-year-old Democratic woman necessarily either. Maybe I am actually. But that's what you need to be looking for. Why are these, why are these Republicans now putting in these brown faces in their commercials? because they're talking to Latino voters, right? You should be looking. What is the race, gender, and uh, the race, ethnicity, the gender, and the age of, these, of, of, of male that you get, of radio that you hear, of, of TV commercials? You start doing that, you're thinking like a political consultant, okay? Um, don't mean to be training a whole lot of political consultants, but race and ethnicity, gender and age. Write those three things down. When you're watching commercials, fill it out for each one, and then you're going to start seeing a trend line of the ads that you're seeing is, hey, they've got a problem with women, (laughs) or they're trying to increase the margin with women, and it's going to start telling you what the campaigns are doing. So don't let, you know, it's it's a different way of looking at ads. That's unfortunately the way I look at ads is I, I look for ads. I'm one of those weird creatures that's like, show me more ads, show me more ads, because the more ads I get, the more I can tell you what's happening with the race. I hope that was helpful, David. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for joining us. Austin, you're next up. Let's go ahead and jump in. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, sir. I have uh, two things. Um, One's an observation, and then second's a question. Uh, First, uh, this morning, uh, this might change your opinion in terms of the Rio Grande uh, Valley seat for Texas 34. Uh, David Wasserman shifted Henry Quaylar's seat from toss up to leans Democratic this morning. Mm-hmm. You, want me to comment? you want me to comment on that? Yeah. Um, okay. I, I mean, no disrespect to Wasserman here, but um, Wasserman of, of the top 22 races in 2020, David Wasserman called none of them correctly. Zero. And as I've said before on this show, I have gotten my ass kicked plenty on election nights, but I have never lost 22 races. And that's the look. And I say that because Wasserman looks at data and analytics, but I really don't believe he has any understanding of, of the fundamentals of campaigns. He was critical of a lot of the work that we were doing with the Lincoln Project, and it was because he didn't understand what we were doing at the Lincoln Project. I think he's a fine analyst, and I think he might be right. He also moved two Arizona seats towards the Democratic position. So it's not just Texas where David's doing it. What They're doing it because they're seeing movement nationally 
towards the Democratic Party. And there's evidence to, to credibly make that case. I think that, that that makes sense. It does not surprise me that what that, that is happening in the Rio Grande Valley. But it's not because Wasserman's telling me that. It's because I'm looking at the actual spend of the parties. The parties are telling me that. Like they, they are a much more credible um, determining factor of what is happening than David Wasserman is. Because Wasserman is probably looking at the same things that I'm looking at, by the way. He's, he's trying to read the tea leaves, somebody who's never run a campaign before. What I'm saying is if the, if the Democrats believe that they can win that race, they would be there or not based off of the dynamics of the race. That, to me, is a much better predictor of what's likely to happen than what Wasserman says or what Larry Sabato says or what Steve Kornacki says. They're all fine fellas. I mean, no disrespect to them. I think they're great at their profession, but I do not look at any of them to determine the outcomes of races because I know how races are won, frankly, at a better level than they do. So I'm looking for evidence. I'm looking for data. That's that's what I'm trying. That's what this show is about. Is I'm not gonna, I'm not here to say Wasserman's right or Wasserman's wrong. I'm here to say the way he approaches races are foundationally and fundamentally different than somebody like me. And I think the outcomes that we saw last cycle are demonstrative of that. A lot of the a lot of the indicators these guys use don't are are are, are meaningless. If you look, if you believe that the generic ballot was the best indicator. Or the, the president in power's approval rating is the best indicator. How the hell do you explain six weeks ago when they were moving in different directions? It, it, you can't. You can't unless you understand what is happening in a campaign. And that's why I'm not a really big believer in uh, – look, they play an important role. But as I've said before, they're like color commentators in a football game, Right? They're, they're giving you their, their ideas and their senses of it. <clears throat> but when I want to know what the decision's going to be made, go ask somebody who's been a quarterback before. Go ask somebody who's been on the field before. And that's, that, to me, is a better indicator because we're not guessing. When you've got to take the shot yourself, when you've got to be the person who actually makes the decision, it's a very different dynamic than just looking at like what everybody else is saying in this direction or that direction. Most of these guys have very, very, very poor track records of picking the actual outcomes of races. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, way to look at it. I haven't thought of it that way before. Um, uh, my uh, second point, which is a question, um, uh-huh. looking at the um, the New York Times poll where they had the questionnaire um, with the largest Hispanic sample. Yeah. I found a couple of numbers in there that I thought were encouraging. Yeah, talk um, to me. For, for example, which part do you think is more extreme? Um, a margin of 51% to 28%, they say the Republican Party is more extreme. Um, yeah. Can I, stop you? Can I stop you right there? Yeah. I'm going to let you finish. Th- this is a really important point, guys. Austin's bringing up a really important point. And this has been a defining feature of Latino voting patterns for 30 years. So, so thanks for bringing that up, and it's a really keen eye. Good work. Let, let me say it again, at least as I heard it. By a 51 to 28-point margin, Hispanics view the Republican Party as more extreme. That 
that data point right there is going to tell you, in large part, how the Latino vote is going to break. And by the way, it's not just for Latinos. The vote of which party is more extreme will tell you a, that is a much better indicator than most other questions you can ask. It's way better than a generic ballot. It's way better than pre- presidential approvals. If you ask which party is more extreme, you're going to get people voting in a negative partisan environment, negative partisan construct. That's the biggest determiner of how people vote. It's especially important in the Latino community because there is this false assumption that people, that most Latinos are voting for the Democratic Party. And I would say that's not true. They're voting against the Republican Party. And there's a big difference there. So what Austin's saying is really, really foundationally important. Not all, but most. And if you look at that 5128 number, there's obviously a good third or whatever it is left or 20 points left. But that's probably not far off from where those numbers are going to be at the end of the day on a national scale. That's the indicator. The Latino vote was created in California by being against the Republican Party. The same thing in Arizona. It's why those numbers are so stratified. And if the Republicans don't tone down their image, they're going to have a long-term problem here. But, and this is important, that 20 points... The fundamentals of the Hispanic vote as a blue-collar, working-class voter breaks Republican as long as it's white. It breaks Democrat as long as it's black. Latinos are in the middle. So if you have half of the remaining vote break for each respective party, half of them go to the Democrats, half of them go to the Republicans— Where does that put the Hispanic vote? It puts it at 38% for the Republicans. The Republican Party is not going to win the the Hispanic vote in my lifetime. But, and here's the caveat, they don't need to. They only need to pick up marginal amounts to have dramatic impacts on the ballot. So let me say that again. 51% of Hispanics view the Republican Party as extreme. 28% view the Democratic Party as extreme. That leaves, what, 78? That's about 20%. I don't know if my math is right. 21%, 22%. Remaining, if those split 50-50, or even if they split a a third to the Republicans, the Republicans are at 33-34 points. What does that mean? It means they're hitting Trump numbers again maybe even surpassing it. That's not a good place for, Republic, for Democrats to be. That's a really bad place for Democrats to be. This is a community they need to be performing with at 68, 70 points, the way that they do or have done at least in Arizona and California to count on building a majority because we are producing more non-college-educated voters than college-educated voters in this country every year, so you can't offset the, mar- the, the, the leakage of these voters with other voter groups. Sorry, Austin, about that, but that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up. Go ahead with the next one. Uh, this question, um, the result really surprised me. Do you think uh, which party um, you consider is the party of the working class? So a margin of 58% to 27%, mm-hmm. uh, they say that the Democratic Party 
is the party of the working class. Yep. So what you're seeing again, um, this is interesting because you got a 27 and a 31, right? You're sitting at basic party partisan numbers. And my argument about the Hispanic shift, and again, I, I talked to the Wall Street Journal and I, I talked to the New York Times reporters about this stuff all the time. Um, political, and I tweeted this the other day. Political realignments don't happen in one election cycle. Mike Madrid is never saying that the Republicans are going to win a majority of the Hispanic vote. Not this year, not next year, not in my lifetime. But listen to me very clearly, guys. They don't need to. <laughs> they don't need to. If they pick up 1% an election cycle, the Southern strategy that the Republican Party realigned American politics on, the Southern strategy, started in 1970. Do you know when it culminated? 1994. Two decades. Realignments do not... The, the, we are in an era of extremely close elections in American politics. So if, 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 if um, Democrats lose one percentage point, how many of these contested congressional races are going to be lost by one percentage point? Probably a dozen. Maybe let's say less. Let's say let's say half of that. Let's say six. How many? How many House seats need to be flipped in order for the Republicans to get a majority? Six. <laughs> like it, it, that's what I'm talking about. So I'm not talking about a massive realignment where suddenly, you know, Latinos are going to come out of their their doors and. The birds are going to be singing and Lee Greenwood songs are going to start and the big Republican rally is going to start all. No, no, no. What I'm saying is the opening there is undeniable. I would rather be the Democrats in winning the Latino vote, not just now for the next 20 years, but they are going to continue to lose marginally for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And that is going to have profound electoral impacts because the Democrats are not adjusting their message for a voter group that is changing, that is adjusting. And we're seeing that at the voting booth. So go ahead. Next one. Uh, this question is, uh, what's your view of Donald Trump's actions after the 2020 election? Um, so the two options are, he was just exercising his right to contest the election. That's number one. Number two, he went so far that he threatened American democracy. So on the he threatened American democracy, that comes in at 64%. Mm -hmm. And the first option is 27%. So 64, 27. Correct. Okay. So, so this is exactly what I'm saying. There's a 27, which is basically a, a pro-Republican constituency. <laughs> The, previ the previous question was what? 27, right? Awesome. Yeah, roughly. Uh, I think exactly. 27. And then the previous question to that was what? 31 or 32? Something like that. Higher? Yeah. So, so look. for the working class um, yeah. question. Same, same exact number, right? And then previous to that, it was what? 31? Uh, the extreme question was 28. Okay, so 20, there you go. So look, there, there, there's your partisan base. That's your baseline vote. Okay, and you know what else? 28% of Latinos identify as Republican. 
Shocker. Okay? Shocker, right? This is this the reason the New York Times called me about this before it went out. I worked with a couple of the reporters on a couple of these stories. Jenny Medina specifically. By the way, Jenny Medina uh, is going to be on the Latino Vote podcast. We interviewed her. It uh, will be coming out tomorrow where we talk about this. So all of this is reinforcing everything that I have been saying. There is a 28% Republican base that, that Latinos identify as. And by the way, it is a hard floor. You're, Democrats are not going to be able to push those numbers down, which is problematic for them. The question is, what happens to those remaining 22% that don't view the, either party as extreme? Unless the Democrats completely dominate that dynamic, they're in trouble. That's the whole point of what is happening. It's not that Republicans are going to win. Look, Mexican-Americans in the Rio Grande Valley and in Arizona and in Los Angeles are not going to turn into Miami-Dade Cubans. That is never going to happen. And it doesn't have to. History and elections are made on the margins. you got to remember that. What we're looking at is a one, two, three-point shift will have devastating consequences if the Democrats don't get their act together and readjust to the changing nature of the electorate. That's what I've been saying. That's what I have been warning. It's where I was right in 2020. It's where I was right in the uh, Virginia, New Jersey elections. I don't know how it's going to come out. I think that I honestly believe, let me say this, and we'll end with this. I honestly believe that Democrats could bring back this constituency because of Dobbs. Because Hispanic women, where they were, had a proclivity or an openness to vote for Republicans, are going to say, nope, just like white women, just like black women, women are women, women on this issue are women, there's, no, there's less differentiation, they're moving back and they're going to vote for the Democrats. That doesn't mean there isn't a rightward Hispanic shift. That's like saying, oh, well, the Republicans may have won the Georgia Senate seat in, in 1972, but that same seat went back to the Democrats in 1978, right? These things don't happen in a straight line. They happen in trend lines over a course of a couple of decades. That's what's happening. And that regional difference, because the, the Democrats are not refilling their base with more college-educated white progressives, the numbers aren't moving there in the right states at the right time, they have to remain solid with the vote break that they're getting with Hispanics or there's going to be a long-term change because of these marginal adjustments to these voter models. That's what the Hispanic shift is. That's actually what the title of the, the article was, right? It's, it's an explanation of this shift that you're referring to. Austin? Yeah, that's... Um... Yeah, an interesting way to uh, look at it with the realignment of the South from strongly Democratic to strongly Republican mm-hmm. over a couple of you know generations. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting it's going to be a realignment. I'm I'm writing a book on this right now, by the way. Uh, it, it'll be out um, you know before the next presidential cycle. I want to wait till the, I get the 22 data in. But look, th- 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 this, is, this is not a real – I'm not suggesting this is a realignment. I have never in my career ever, and I've been, I've been studying this for 30 years, said that Republicans are going to win the Hispanic vote. Not in my lifetime. That will not happen. But they don't need to to dramatically change the political calculus and the math of our, of our, of our, um, of our pol- political system. I don't, I don't believe Republicans are ever going to win a majority. If they start, pro- if they start routinely performing at 33%, 
335%. The Democratic Party is in deep, deep, deep trouble. Deep trouble. That's the argument that I'm making. So when we talk about this, the rightward shift, everyone's like, all, oh, you know, they're going to move 20 points. They did in the Rio Grande Valley. There's not a lot of voters, but uh, I, I, no, no one's saying, I, nobody credible is saying there's going to be a 20-point shift or a 15-point shift or a 10-point shift with Hispanic voters. That's not, that's not what anybody's saying. What we're saying is there's movement. There's this gradual movement that is happening, and that's undeniable. That's the evidence that's there. I don't think it's, by the way, I don't think this is good or bad data for Democrats. I think it's data they need to just start paying attention to. That's all. That's my other case. That's all that I'm saying, too, is just start paying attention. Start developing a strategy for it. It's fixable. I haven't seen them doing the, what they need to do to fix it. But, you know, Dobbs could save it. My fear is if Dobbs saves it, they're going to act like, oh, that never really happened. And it's like, yeah, wait till next cycle. When it's not a one-point shift, it's a four-point shift because you haven't adjusted your strategy. That's, that's the likeliest scenario that I'm seeing. Hope that was helpful, Austin. Thanks for the yeah, comments. Yeah, that, that was that was good. I appreciate it. Thanks for bringing such insightful questions. You're welcome. Hope you're up. You're next into the queue. Go ahead and unmute. Okay. Hi. I'm a, good. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put in a little throat laws and share while I listen yeah, to your I'm, question. I'm clearing my throat too. I'm okay. a neighbor. I'm I live in Elk Grove and I. Oh. Yeah, I lived here for 32 years, and I was really annoyed that I was out of town when you and Tim Miller were. were oh. Oh man, I was really upset about that. I really well, we may have, we may have. By the way, we may be having a big event coming up in early October. I can't speak too much about it, but it'll be here hopefully in Sacramento. Um, there's a you know there's a there's a there, I, look. You heard it maybe here first. Maybe you guys have heard that uh, there's going to be a, a documentary coming out on October the seventh mm-hmm. on the Lincoln Project. Um, it's going to tell the whole story. So you're going to see trailers and big, heavy promotion starting. It'll be on Showtime, five episodes. Um, it's coming out. It's not a secret anymore. And um, we may be doing something here in Sacramento. So uh, cool. stay alert. And isn't this isn't the rain fantastic? By the way. Oh my God! Hey, you know what? We just had to replace a well today, which cost five thousand dollars. Oh. Two acres, and don't ask. <laughs> oh. But anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up a liberal Jewish New Yorker mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, what scares me the most of all this stuff is every time Marjorie Taylor Greene opens her mouth and everything with the white Christian supremacy stuff. But mm-hmm. I have to say, um, I have to ask you a question, something I've done a couple of years ago. Um, I got into the postcard writing, mm-hmm. uh, for candidates and I, figured you know i i donate occasionally and i think you know what i like feeling like i'm doing something more tangible more concrete you know so Mm -hmm. i wrote like 100 postcards to georgia voters Uh you know trying to push warnock and awesome and i'd like to think that maybe it was some of my postcards that put them over the top good you should but you're doing you're doing everything you can do and that's so important okay so i'm doing it now and i just did 100 for california Mm-hmm. And I'm doing a hundred for Nevada, mm-hmm. um, because of all you've been saying and everybody's been saying about. I'm really worried about Nevada, um, but it's interesting the California because I know I know California pretty well, especially the Central Valley because my son lives in L.A. and I can't tell you how many times we're back and forth. And it's really interesting how many Hispanic names I'm writing to in Avenal, 
mm-hmm. and Solari and mm-hmm. all these like like uh, you know and and you know I'm hoping that they really come out you know for the, for this and uh, I just wanted you to tell me how effective do you think these these postcard writing things are I mean does it you think it's effective or well let me answer that in two ways what what is I do think it's effective I, I do. Uh, I, and I don't know what the nature of them are. I don't know if you write like a long message. Um, do you write a long message or do you just sign okay, it? Okay, there's a script. So, yeah. Okay, so I got these postcards. I really like them. Got these postcards. And on the on the front, it says, ride the wave, vote blue. And mm-hmm. there's a don- um, donkey on a surfboard. It's really cute with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with uh, waves. And yeah. place to put their address. And on the back, you write, um, dear, whatever their name is. Like the ones for Nevada, I'm writing is the Supreme Court has taken away your right to the right to abortion. Republicans are pushing for a nationwide ban. Reelect Senator Catherine, blah, 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 blah. Um, a strong advocate for choice. And then you write, thanks, your name. OK, yeah. so and it's in longhand. You know, it's pretty it's pretty legible. And I can't remember what I did. The California ones. They, yeah. Um, okay. So, so you're writing to Democrats to get Democrats right. out. Oh, these okay. are all the Democratic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, look, I, I if it's uh, look, I, the the most impactful voter contact, the, the most single most impactful voter contact is an in person knock on your door, mm-hmm. and talking to voters. You you can't do that, right? Because you, you can't do that. You're not going to go to Nevada. I mean, you know, California does ship a lot of Democratic activists to Nevada. They do it with Republicans sometimes, too. But usually Democrats go to Nevada in these battleground contests, and they'll take buses up there and and rent hotel rooms and and do a bunch of get-out-the-vote. That is the most impactful. It's better than TV ads, better than social media, better than billboards, better than anything you can think of. In-person contact is the best. The second is by writing a note and a message, usually leaving it on their doorstep. But I do think that it's a really smart idea that both sides have been using – Democrats much more effectively to write these handwritten notes to people to remind them to get them out to vote. So that's the main, I look, I do think it's effective, but what I will say is this, even if it's 1% effective, let's say it's 1% effective. Isn't it worth it? Mm-hmm. Like, like, is it worth it to do everything that you could do at a time when the other thing that you could be doing is just sitting back and, and not doing anything? So, yeah, I'm a big believer in it. I mean, I'm not going to say it's, you know, moving yeah. hundreds of thousands right. of votes. Well, but if you move. It also makes it, me feel good because it makes yeah. me feel like I'm doing something, you know, a really, like I said, really act. I'm being really proactive. And, uh, you know, 100 postcard, 100 post postcard stamps is forty four dollars and mm-hmm. another 15 for the. You know, and Jay and I was sitting here. I was listening to this, and I was writing some uh, postcards while I was. There you go. There you go. Yeah, you're you're participating in. Yeah, you're participating (laughs) in democracy, and you're doing what you can to make a difference. That that to me is the most important thing. Is if enough people were committed to be doing that, or felt the compulsion to do that, we would be in a much better place. Not because you're not because you're necessarily making a difference in the outcome of the vote, which I think you are. But because you're that committed to democracy. And if you're that committed to democracy, if everybody was doing that, we would just be in a much better, healthier place. Mm-hmm. And so I want to commend you and thank you. And, and yeah, I think you ought to be doing it. Yeah. And I just want to tell you that when you get a 16, it's okay to draw when the dealer shows a four, five or six. <laughs> because, because my father was a card counter and he was thrown out of casinos and he taught me how to play. So Okay. Okay. Yeah, some, sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes you, sometimes you hit. But thank you for that feedback. I love that. Okay, thank you. Sure. 
Guys, go ahead and jump into the queue. Uh, we've got some uh, more questions coming up if you'd like. We've been running for about an hour and a half. It looks like our crowd is still staying with us. We've got a pretty good group here. Do me one other quick favor before I go to Annika, who's a regular caller, and ask some really fantastic questions. If you could also share the fact that we're still going, go ahead, keep pumping it out on Twitter. It helps me a lot. Make sure you're subscribing to the show. If you have not subscribed yet, make sure you subscribe to the show. And feel free to jump into the queue if you guys have any questions. But go ahead and unmute. Annika, you're on stage, and let's have that question. Oh, I got two questions. So first question okay. about the DeSantis uh, sending uh, Venezuelans to up north. Yeah. Does it affect their elections? And then um, second thing is, like, I'm just curious, like, in certain areas, would Asian voters be impactful? Like, oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah, well, let's tackle it, the. F I never heard anything, you know, there's no data about us Asians. Yeah, know? let me get to the Asian question second. And the short answer is that, yes, absolutely. And, and again, there's some great people that you should be following on Twitter that I can um, point you in the direction of. Um, but first, let's talk about DeSantis's decision to kind of move uh, undocumented folks to Martha's Vineyard. Horrible stunt, completely morally bankrupt, shameful act. Um, I think it's going to hurt uh, DeSantis. I think I think it will help Republicans generally. Uh, I was I was in Texas I think last week. I think I mentioned this to you guys, and I'm going to be doing uh, releasing this Texas poll with some folks in the coming days. Um, Fifty-two percent of Texans, not just Republicans, Texans, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, approved of of of, the, of this activity. Fifty-two percent of Texans regardless of party, we're saying, yeah, send, send them to blue states. So there is, there is appeal. Republicans like this, and that's just Republicans. There's some crossovers I mentioned. These types of, um, he wouldn't be doing it. I don't think DeSantis would be doing it if it wasn't getting him some benefit. But here's why I think it's going to hurt him. I think, especially in the Venezuelan community, you're going to start getting some pushback. And it also really starts to fracture the Cuban community. Not a lot, not a lot, because they're locked into, but enough to say, wait a second, wait a second. Like, is this, is this really what we stand for? And have I been, you know, choosing wrong sides on this kind of a thing? Um, I, think it, I think it's most pronounced and most impactful with Venezuelans where it's really going to hurt them. And that doesn't hurt anybody else uh, in the country, by the way. The Venezuelan community is pretty significant. It's measurable in Florida. Um, and it has been trending Republican for the same reason that, that Cubans have, which is they're fleeing communist regimes, fleeing authoritarian regimes. And now what you're seeing is Venezuelans that were put on these planes and moved from Texas to, uh, to, to, um, to Martha's Vineyard. It, it creates a fracture in the Hispanic community that DeSantis doesn't need. Is it going to affect the outcome of his race for governor? No, it's not. I think he's in a very strong position. I think he's in a commanding position. Um, but does it help? Does his base love it? They love it. And a lot of this has to do with presidential politics as much as it has to do with um, his, his reelection efforts. And make no mistake about it. I mean, Gavin Newsom from California is leaning into the fight here with DeSantis, that helps DeSantis. It hurts Trump, by the way. Trump's not getting any good news other than, you know, which legal, you know, hammer is falling on, on his head at any given day. 
DeSantis is is posturing nationally with this strategy, and he's the 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 heir to the anti-immigrant throne is going to be what they are pursuing. By the way, and I'll be writing about this in the book too. That that's going to work really well for probably two more election cycles, and then it's going to be a spectacular collapse. It's going to be a huge negative for the Republicans who are running as ant- on anti-immigrant messages, and it's going to be a huge negative for the Republican brand beyond that. So that's a really great question. I hope I answered it sufficiently. Let's talk really briefly about the AAPI community. Uh, there, are, there is no question, if you're looking especially at Orange County, for example, um, the Vietnamese community um, is going to be absolutely critical in a couple of those House races, Young Kim seat and Michelle Steele seat, uh, both of them API women. By the way, Republicans have made huge inroads in uh, with API candidates, Asian Pacific Islander candidates. Um, in many ways, in California, what a lot of people were consciously trying to do is they had screwed it up with the Hispanic community so badly and started to perform so poorly with Hispanics that they needed to to create an inroads with the Asian community because the party was becoming so overwhelmingly white that there was no diversity. And they uh, very astutely and adroitly went out and recruited candidates, female candidates, uh, by and large, to run for office. Uh, is one of those congresswomen from Orange County, Michelle Steele, congresswoman from Orange County. There's a state senator, Ling Ling Chang, who ultimately lost her election, but she was also um, um, uh, a, a kind of a rising star in GOP politics. Um, that, that is going to be a concerted strategy by the Republican Party. But um, if you're looking for, for some voices to kind of follow on Twitter, I will tell you that some, one of my uh, dear friends here is a good Democrat, really, really wise, is a guy named Bill Wong. If you want to follow Bill uh, on Twitter, you should. He's at Bill Wong L. He is the chief political strategist for the Assembly Democrats. He's built the largest Democratic majority in the state's history. He's a really sharp operative, and he is really, really focused on the AAPI community. He's got a great new podcast out. Uh, the name um, escapes me, but if you follow him on Twitter, you can DM him, send him a note, tell him Mike Madrid sent you, and you can follow his podcast and get all the happenings on AAPI politics, where the vote matters, where candidates are being recruited, and what the community is rallying behind to, um, to advocate and push for. I think you find it a great resource. All right. Uh, thanks a lot. Then uh, one more question. Yep. You were talking about the Hispanic, uh, the non-educated. Uh-huh. Uh, so I guess my question would be like, so we shouldn't worry, right? Because one of your Twitter was saying like, they, they don't go, they don't go out to vote whole a lot. Like the non-college educated uh, white voters is that right if i understand your twitter correctly the hispanic non-college educated for now we it's not too much of a concern because they don't turn out as high as the white voters well latino and api api voters and latino voters both have very low turnout rates historically that's changing in this environment but i i think turnout is a, is a problem for democrats they're not getting the turnout that they need from Latino voters. And this kind of goes back to Austin's point earlier. 
is if you look at it on its face, and again, if you're not worried about the margins, let me, let me I'm gonna do a little quick campaign math here. So hang in there with me, folks. But this this is this is a really important point. If, if you're winning, if you're winning the Hispanic vote, um, 65-35, let's say the Democrats are getting 65 percent to 35 percent. You hear Mike Madrid say that's not great because that's not the margin that you need. You really need to get to 70-30, hypothetically. Well, that's true unless you start to get really, really high turnout. Because the higher the turnout metric is, it doesn't matter what the margin is. The raw number, the, the math is still bad, right? The math is still bad for you. And if Democrats got higher turnout... It would benefit them. The more Hispanics, Latinos turn out, by and large, few exceptions, Cubans, of course, and Miami South Dade and Venezuelans and some Mexican-Americans in the Rio Grande Valley. But by and large, higher turnout benefits Democrats. The problem is they very, very, very rarely get the turnout numbers that they need. And I've been watching them try to do it for 30 years. It's why I talk so much with Chuck Rocha, because Chuck, uh, we do this Latino Vote podcast together, and he explains kind of the mechanics of what he does. It's, it's kind of fascinating. But he's the only political operative, Democrat or Republican, that I've seen that has actually changed turnout numbers in a race. So Mike Madrid is absolutely correct if if the turnout rate stays the same as the 30-year trend line, right? But I'm wrong if if more Latinos show up. It's even if you're losing, even if the margin closes, if the raw numbers expand, you can win that way too. But the Democrats aren't capable of doing that either. So I don't think that necessarily answers your question. But turnout, lower turnout, lower Latino turnout hurts Democrats. And they have never been able to figure out a way to change the voter model in, in sufficient numbers to actually um, offset this creeping margin that Republicans are getting. I hope that makes sense. Let me, let me try to say it one more time. Give me some thumbs up if I'm making sense, if I'm just blathering and you don't understand me, because I, I do want to be clear. I'm starting to see a couple, uh, one thumbs up, two thumbs up. So basically, it's the way you look at math between percentages and raw numbers. If Republicans are getting a percentage increase of the Latino vote, that can be offset if the whole pie of Latino voters increases. So that's what Democrats always focus on turnout. Republicans always focus on the margin. My whole goal as a Republican strategist back in the day was to pick off 3 or 4% of the Latino vote that the Democrats weren't expecting, and I was very good at it. They would spend 10 times more money trying to turn out three, four more percent. And so they would turn out people, and I would just go to the existing voter base and pick off and peel off new voters, and it would be a wash. And if I did that, then that would benefit my candidates. And the Democrats haven't really figured this out. They just they, they haven't figured it out, mainly because they just haven't paid attention to the community. I think that's going to change. I think they're going to start doing it, but we'll have to wait and see. Amy, you're next up. Step up on stage, unmute that button, and whoop, and let's have a run at whatever question I can answer for you. Got to unmute, Amy, if you're there. You still with us? 
I know Amy's there because Amy's called in before. I think she's either asking the question to herself right now with the mute button on, or she's probably got tired of sitting in the queue. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you, Mike. I just really, I just a uh, clarification question. Cause I, um, I do going back to the lady earlier who's writing postcards. I, I, um, I do canvassing locally, you know, door to door with my local candidates. I also do phone banking for remote candidates out of state phone banking and, and postcard writing stuff. So if I understood you right, cause my thought always was that, um, like you said, the best is, you know, face-to-face person. Uh, yep. that's good. My thought always was that the second would be phone banking and the third would be postcard writing. But are you saying that postcard, like letter postcard writing actually falls into the second category? It's I think part- so. I think okay. so. And I'll, I'll tell you why I, um, if you do phone banking and I don't want to, I don't want to dissuade anybody from any type of activity, mm-hmm. but if you've, if you've ever done phone banking, and it sounds like you do. Yes. Um, you start to hit a saturation point where people just start getting kind of pissed off. And that's I, I don't like getting to that point because I don't I don't want my voters rejecting, especially when you're calling Democrats for getting out the vote. Mm-hmm. I think you hit a, I think you hit a point of, of marginal returns, which could be very complicated. And so uh, I, I'm not saying don't do it. I, but I am saying I think that a handwritten note – how many handwritten notes do you get anymore? Like that's an art form of the past. Yeah. I, get phone call, I get phone calls every day, right? Most of them I don't want to take. But a, a, a handwritten letter, like somebody cared that much to write a handwritten note. Yeah. Like that, that just that, – that doesn't happen anymore. And, and at a minimum, that's going to stop me in my tracks and go, whoa, and I'm, and I'm going to read that. I don't even know if I can read cursive writing anymore. It's been so damn long, right? <laughs> that, that, to me, is really, really impactful. And, I, I, you know, look, I, I, there's, I'm not saying don't do one or the other. Do what you can do and do what you're most comfortable with. And this is important. Do what you're going to do the most of. Because all these campaigns need you doing more. So do that. Um, The gradations between which is better are so de minimis. I I don't want to – I want you to do what you're going to do more of. If you like calling and talking to people, then do that. If you like handwriting letters, then do that. Don't worry about the efficiency of either of those two. They're both good activity, and what's important is you do as much of it. So do what you enjoy. Okay. That's that that fair. Is, that is. Yep. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Amy. Always good to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Peggy, you're Hi. on deck. Hi. How how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Active, active. Yeah. <laughs> letters, phone banking. Um, this, this movement with the women. Um, I, I just joined this this um, nonprofit pack for women, and what they do is what they do. What we do is we phone we phone bank women who usually don't vote. We have talking about that a little bit before. And we, we talk to them and we have conversations with them about voting and what they, what they think their issues are and all of that. And they, they pinpoint Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, I can't even think of it right now, a couple other states. But, but the four or five main like swing states, basically. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. 
So I'm pretty impressed with that group, and I just started doing that with them. Um, What's so, the name of the group? Can people join if you want to give a little shout out to yeah. have other people engage? Why don't you give a little promo here? Sure. Super Majority Education Fund. You find, find them on the web Twitter. there or Twitter? You find them on Twitter, on the web, sure. Okay. Sure. Super Majority they're- Education Fund. If you guys want to get involved with this type of volunteer grassroots activity and make a difference coming into the into the November elections. I can tell you it's a great community of women, which is what I was looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And I found it there. They're just a wonderful group of women all over. So anyway, so I was going to start to do some work locally. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just came from my town Democratic meeting, right? Dem- Democratic meeting. I'm a member. Um, so I'm going to start there. But you were talking about the Latino vote. What is it that Democrats are not doing? I find it incredibly frustrating. What is it that Democrats are not doing? Because if these are gettable votes, yeah. what are we not seeing in the Hispanic community? Are we not communicating? What are we not doing? I think there's, I think there's a, there's, there's, um, look, I'm seeing more this cycle than I've seen in the past. Um, mm. I, I do believe that there needs to be, a, there's a message problem. I don't believe that the Democratic Party is the party of the working class as much as they need to be. Austin brought up some good data. 27% of, only 27% of Latinos view the Republican Party as the party of the working class. So what the hell are you talking about, Mike? Well, again, this is going to be won on the margins. I guarantee you the 20% of undecideds that Austin is, is pointing out in this New York Times survey 90% 90% of that, those are non-college educated blue collar workers. So if Republicans get more than 30% of those, they're making inroads. That's how the math works. How and are until they getting the, them? They're, they're talking about protecting industries mm-hmm. and, and, and government regulations. Look, the, whether it's energy, right, which is the, the, the big boogeyman, but agriculture, fishing, mining, manufacturing, right? These jobs mm-hmm. that Donald Trump was promising to bring back and protect. I love talking with Chuck Rocha. Again, I, I want to plug the Latino Vote podcast that we do together as well. But look, the, the reason why he's so interesting to me is he started out in politics as a union man. And what's so mm-hmm. funny is like, he's the Democrat, I'm the Republican. We do this show to kind of share more insight. And he's a guy from the Rio Grande Valley, wears cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, He's kind of an aw shucks redneck Mexican, he calls himself. I, I grew up a pretty hard scrabble, you know, lower, lower middle class, lower, lower, lower middle class kid. Nice. I went to public schools. I, 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 I got my life back on track after barely graduating from high school. I got my shit together. I ended up going to Georgetown University, wrote my senior thesis on Latino voters 20, 30 years ago, and I'm a Republican. Now, today, Chuck would be the Republican. And I would be the Democrat. I listen to you guys. I listen to you guys too. Fabulous, fabulous. No, thanks. Yeah, and that's what's so ironic. It's like we're so old now. We've already gone through this whole dynamic where like the the, 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 the Latino kid who grew up in a Democratic household who goes to you know one of the top 15, 20 schools in America, that guy's going to be a Democrat now. The, the guy who grows up with no college education, a criminal record, who started working at Goodyear Tire and is from the Rio Grande Valley, that's a Republican. Like it's yeah. completely shift. 
So that's, I think, why we bring this unique perspective. And Chuck actually has a voice that the Democratic Party really needs to hear as the voice of working class folks. It's why Tim Ryan's working in Ohio. The guy, the guy speaks to blue collar. It's why Fetterman works in Pennsylvania. These are yes. blue collar dudes, man. That's that is where the Democrats are hemorrhaging voters, and if they don't fix that uh, fast, that's then you know these most of these Senate seats and a lot of these House seats are going to go away. So that's the answer. Okay, so I'm going to go start going out. I'm going to start canvassing and phone phone banking. Oh, I had. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah, we got a good, a good group of people in the queue, though, and my battery's dying. So what you got? Okay. So last week when, when I called in, we talked about uh, Stacey Abrams and that she had a problem, the same problem that Hillary Clinton had, right? Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. So, okay. So uh, I'm thinking now we have a, a female governor running, Kathy Hochul. Does she have this problem? I hope she doesn't. But... Not in New York. Nah. Okay. No, no. You're, you're fine, New York. You keep helping out other states. New York, you're fine. <laughs> I, I do don't, help out other states. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. I know you do. Don't, don't, don't be. No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't be worried about that. No, no, no. Don't okay, because I don't that. want to worry about that. <laughs> no, you got a lot. You're worrying about far too much. Yeah, don't, you're, you're, you're looking for things to worry about, Peggy. Don't worry about I'm that. I'm trying to be everywhere, Mike. <laughs> I know you're doing great. Keep up the good work, and thanks for following. Appreciate it. I'm going to bring up Lisa now, who's our okay. next caller. Thanks so much. Lisa, go ahead and unmute. Sorry for that wait. The key's uh, getting longer there. Hit that unmute button. I need like a sound effect for that interim where we wait for a few moments. Lisa, you dropped off after all of that wait. Um, it looks like we've got a new group. I'm going to, Annika, I'm going to get to you in a second. I'm going to bring up a new caller to this show caller on the program renee i popped you up at the top of the queue only because i already asked a question and we will get to you guys if my phone doesn't die beforehand but how are you doing i'm doing okay mike how are you i'm doing great my voice is about to fall apart but i'm hanging in there for the moment i'm with you man i've got bronchitis so i'm struggling too um Ooh. Yeah, I got another hypothetical question for you. You always ask these tough hypotheticals. <laughs> I think you I think you spent hours saying how am I gonna stump Mike tonight? No, it just popped in my head a few seconds ago. I was oh, thinking okay. about Okay, you know I'm in North Carolina, so we have funky yep. dynamics down here. Mm-hmm. I'm originally from Virginia, and of course we have funky dynamics up there. You know, mm-hmm. we have Alabama and New Jersey put together. Yeah. So like, I can remember my first election I ever worked on, I was 15, and we were knocking doors for Doug Wilder with my dad, right? Wow. I was at Georgetown during that campaign, so that tells you how old I am. Okay. But, you know, <laughs> so that was my first campaign, and we worked really hard to turn that state blue, and now mm-hmm. this has happened. Mm-hmm. And then I look at the campaigns here in North Carolina, and I look at, you know, going from blue to red, but pretty much... Our representation in the state house and in Congress is red. Um, I was contemplating how, that it might be a smart move in states like Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina. If you had a Democratic candidate that hired a Republican consultant, I think that's a brilliant idea. The problem is there are not very many people who do that. And this has been a big change in um, politics. When I was younger, it was more common. 
But that was when politics was a game of addition. And we used to have things like Democrats for, you know, my Republican governor or, or Democrats for my, you know, whatever. Other it, Crossing parties was not, was not that big of a deal. Okay. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it would turn people's heads and go, huh, let me take a second look at that candidate. If you turn across your party now, you get the Lincoln Project treatment, right? Like we were, we were worse than, they treated us like the worst of the worst. Like we were, we were, we were apostates. We were, we were turncoats. We were, we betrayed them. And then they attack you, you know, horribly. And, and, and that's part of the partisan environment that we're in. And so you can imagine how difficult it is for a consultant to do that because you lose your livelihood. If you're a Republican who goes to work for a Democrat, you're, it's over. You're, you're never going to work for a Republican ever again, ever. Um, my firm is a relic of the past. I mean, we've been my, – my partner – my partner's a good Democrat, by the way. I worked for the DCCC years ago. I'm a Republican. We are, the only th- the only thing we've ever argued about is baseball. By the way, we we've never argued about politics, although we see the world very, very, very differently. And what I will say is, um, we could never start a firm like this today. We we could never. There's just no such animal. There may be a handful of like older guys like me that are established, and we don't. I'm not reliant on the party, and I don't need the party for my business. But but by and large, by and large, um, those days are gone. They're just completely gone. So um, it's good thinking, but it's not likely to happen. That's really unfortunate because I think to win um, consistently in states like that, in like in Ohio, a Virginia, a North Carolina. You really have to have somebody with the ability to think and present things like a Republican. Um, you do, and I, and, I and that the problem the problem is Democrats and Republicans think very differently. Exactly. Yeah, it's why I think we were so effective with the Lincoln Project is we we knew what we were doing, and it was something that Democrats could not do. And so, yes, that is unfortunate, but Democrats and Republicans think very, very differently. We approach the world differently, and we approach politics very, very differently. I think that's one of the problems that we have in areas yep. like that is, you know, we have we have people coming in here running campaigns that won't pull the gloves off, and, and you just can't win here like that. Yeah. You just can't. That's, that's, that but, is, amen, you've wrapped up a big part of the problem that we have in the country. It's not just in some of those states, but they're particularly pronounced in some of those closer states with Republican legislatures and states where Democrats can win the executive office. But it really does go to approach. And it's, it's why it explains a Yunkin who has to campaign as a moderate to win in Virginia, uh, but then immediately re- returns to base as soon as he gets in. And it's kind of like, I told you, the guy's a you know, wolf in sheep's clothing, and here he is showing it to you. Well, anyway, thank you very much for answering my question, Mike. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for joining in. We'll get back to the regular schedule on the queue. And I'm going to apologize in advance. I'm going to keep going as long as I can here, but my my phone is literally about to die. So if I shut off, that will unfortunately be the end of the episode. But we've got a lot. We've still got a big group here. So I'm, I'll keep going. My, my Take some, some throat lozenges, drinking some water. Let's just keep going until the battery dies or, or you guys are done with questions. Annika, another question. Yeah, well, I just a comment 
somebody was saying about why Latino doesn't vote or care about um, listen to Democrat, I kind of, as a minority Asian, I kind of felt like folks like us, we don't really care about democracy, constitutions. You know, we, at least for me, even though I'm a college educator, I felt like it's like a liberal white people's concern. A lot of immigrants like us, we come here just to try to survive, make money, you know. I yeah. mean, of course, I understand the importance is because I listen, I guess I'm a political junkie, you know, uh-huh. listen to you guys. Then I realize, right. oh, crap, this is going to ruin my bread and butter in the future. Yeah, mm-hmm. sorry, that's all I want to comment. No, I appreciate it. Good comment. We'll move on to, whoop. Amy, I'm sorry. I am going to make you the next caller. I added you up onto the uh, platform. Go ahead and unmute. How are you? Good. Another question. So um, going back to, um, so I am doing foot traffic with my local Indiana representative for the house. And um, I was doing it before the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And then when we, when that happened, like, you know, you always get a script that you're supposed to do door to door and it changed completely. They were focused. They did basically focused only on women. Like we're only going to doors for women. Yeah. But what's interesting is I've been reading lately um, some stuff about, you know, like Roe v. Wade is not just a women's issue that, that like young men are, are voters that will vote on this. And I feel like we might be missing a whole entire demographic uh, that, that would, would, that we should be focusing on in, in terms of this issue. They're just your comments on that. I would only focus on women um, be, because there are a whole lot of reasons. Um, first is you've got an 85, 90% likelihood you're going to find a friendly uh, voter where with men, let's say best case, it's 70%. You're down to numbers now. First is I, I'm not going to second guess a consultant. They're seeing something. They're telling you something. And so follow that because it's not just their instinct. There's probably some science, some polling, some data that's saying to go do this. This is where you can be most helpful. Um, but the second is um, even if not, you, you got to go fishing where the fish are. And there's a lot of fish in that barrel in a way that I haven't seen in decades on any issue. So I would not second guess that. If you can, in the same, in the same period of time, you're going to get women who are just naturally, emotionally, viscerally motivated by this issue. We're seeing it in registration spikes. We're seeing it in voter turnout spikes. We're seeing it by every available metric. I would not use the efficiency of the time you have left. Yeah. I'm going to leave. Uh, I'm going to end mic drop on this. W- w- Amy, it's a great question. Let me say this. The most important resource you have in a campaign is time it's not money everybody thinks it's money it's not the most valuable resource you have on a political campaign is time and it's a wasting asset once it's gone you don't get it back so all the homework that you do all the foundational work all the capacity and infrastructure that you build over 18 months coming into a two-year cycle is all being fully executed right now. And you've got one chance to get it right. Mm-hmm. 
and it's why you focus on the most efficient way to get the highest yield. Okay, that's going to tell you something. You're not going to hear that from a Wasserman or a Sabato or a Kornacki, right? This is a guy who's been in the trenches. The most valuable asset you have is time. Focus your efforts on what's going to get you the greatest efficiency, meaning the highest return on the amount of calls you make, the postcards you send, the doors you knock on, or the dollars you spend, or commercials you place. Everything comes down to how efficient you can be given the short amount of time that you've got left. It's far, far more efficient to talk to women than men of any age group that doesn't, you know, nothing, nothing against my, my, my gender or, or some of my guys who are out there that would be amenable to it. It's just if you can get 8 out of 10 instead of 7 out of 10, focus on the 8 out of 10 100 times out of 100. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you all for joining me on Mic Drop. Good, good episode today. Lots of questions. I hope that this has been helpful. I'm going to probably start doing this a couple times a week. I don't know if my vocal cords are going to handle it, but I will keep being here and, and showing up as long as you guys stick around. Um, I'm happy to do that. Um, it, it is very helpful to me if you guys share the episode, keep building the audience, keep this going. The bigger the audience, the more the questions, the more the questions, the longer we can go. I appreciate your feedback. I appreciate everything that you're doing. We're really getting into the exciting times of campaigns. If you have topics or questions, you can go ahead and tweet them at me. Um, and I am listening to them. Even if I don't respond, I want you to know that I am paying attention and that we will be engaging uh, with you on this format to get your questions answered because I know there's going to be a ton of them. Uh, even if we do this in three or four days, there's going to be a lot more polling data, a lot more money moving, a lot more ads hitting, and a lot more uh, shifting in the electorate. I'll be here to help explain it to you from my lens, through my eyes as a practitioner. Thanks again for being with me on Mic Drop. You'll hear from me again in the next few days.